You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for uh, showing up and downloading the show. Sorry for the delay in uh, in the podcast here. It's been kind of a busy, uh, busy few weeks for me, but... Um, Everything's starting to slow down, I think, or at least I'm kind of getting numb to it. I'm not sure which is which, but uh, so got a lot of stuff. Let's just jump right in. First show note stuff. I added four new um, podcasts to the Revelations Radio Network. So if you're a subscriber there, you will notice some uh, new new voices. But if you're not, you should subscribe to it. Revelations Radio Network is on iTunes. You can also go to the website of the same name. Okay, so... Canary Cry Radio is the the uh, first one alphabetically here. Um, I guess if I did it alphabetically, A, B, C, E, F, G, H. Okay, yeah, everything's good. So Canary Cry Radio was uh, it, it, one of the guys there. It's a, it's a, two guys that are hosting the podcast. One of them is uh, Ghani from Age of Deceit. He is a friend. He's also helped with other other uh, videos, including he did Victor's story on my. Um, on my YouTube channel, he also did the truth behind ghost hunting, and uh, so yeah, he also blogs under uh, Face Like the Sun and, on the Revelations Radio Network. And now this podcast, Canary Cry Radio, you can go to the website and read what they're all about. I, I think uh, some of you have already commented that you really uh, like the show and it's uh, going really good. So I encourage you to check that out. From behind the plow dot com is a website. It's it's a Bible study website from Chris Vanover, uh, or podcast rather. It, it's um, it's really good. He just started with Nehemiah 1. I really highly recommend anybody to learn as much as you can about the book of Nehemiah, especially if there's any kind of um, tendency towards administration or, or leadership, or whether it's church or parachurch or just regular. It's it's a, an amazingly informative book about, uh, about that and about everything. I, I think I, I've been um, thinking a lot about the book of Nehemiah in terms of the Africa trip, I think it's kind of like Nehemiah prepared a whole lot and he had all the stuff ready to go build these walls and he had great ideas and great project. And it would have been one thing if the story of Nehemiah was, and Nehemiah went to Jerusalem and built the walls in 52 days and there weren't any problems and then they came home. And, you know, everything went smoothly and there were no, you know, <laughs> and it kind of makes me think, that that's sort of like what a lot of the prayers that I've been praying have been about. Like, Lord, just make everything go smoothly and let everything that I'm doing work out and and everything. But that wouldn't be a very good story, and I wouldn't learn a whole lot. So uh, I think that really just comes down to embracing, you know, embracing difficulties, expecting difficulties, and when they happen, sort of uh, kind of plowing right through them, learning what you can from them, never wasting an opportunity to uh, to 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 learn through difficulties. I guess. Easier said than done, I guess, too. Anyway, um, Future Quake South Africa is the other podcast that's been added. Uh, you Futurians out there will will know and have heard about Future Quake South Africa, so we welcome them aboard to the Revelations Radio Network. And also Michael Heiser's new podcast, um, the Naked Bible Podcast. This is also uh, uh, something that a lot of you will will know. You'll know Mike Heiser, uh, and he is a, a somebody that I just played um, a clip from a talk he did at the Ancient of Days conference, and I think uh, he really needs no introduction around these parts. So he's started a podcast and has agreed to let it be on the Revelations Radio Network. Uh, 
So I'm excited about all that stuff. So if you if you want to, you can go to the website, revelationsradionetwork.com, and check it out. Also on iTunes. Next on the agenda, I wanted to mention quickly this uh, new book from David Anderson. Um, trying to think of this as a book promotion. I mean, I, I guess I am trying to promote his book, but but really I'm trying to promote it for altruistic reasons. Um, he, uh, he He's a guy that... Uh, I first found when I was trying to find out whether the the claims Zeitgeist made, this is actually before Zeitgeist was a gleam in Peter Joseph's eye, but uh, there were still people that were giving kind of Zeitgeist-like claims out there before it came out, um, as Jordan Maxwell and Charlie S. had obviously been out before Zeitgeist. So uh, anyway, so people were making those claims, and I was doing some research to find out whether or not it was true. David Anderson is the guy that I came across in his website, King David 8. And he pointed me to other people like uh, tectonics.org and other places. But um, David is, when I put out the $1,000 Zeitgeist Challenge, David also put out a $1,000 challenge. And David has been really actively engaging in forums with uh, with the Zeitgeist, uh, uh, Zeitgeist sort of diehards that are out there. And he's done a really good job. I think he does a really good service in doing that. He's really humble. He's really uh, direct. He's really honest. But almost as important as all that is his willingness to engage, and he has certainly been doing that. He's on the forums. He's talking with the Zeitgeist uh, diehards. I mentioned in uh, Zeitgeist History Rewritten that since the first wave of, of debunkings that Elliot Nash and Keith Thompson and I did and, and others, lots of websites out, out there did, um, there's been kind of like a, a yes butters is what I what I sometimes think of them as is like, Okay, no, Horace wasn't born on December 25th, but um, Horace is kind of like the sun, and the sun is comes up every day, so he's the sun is born every day, so December 25th might as well be a good day that he could be born too. Like, that's really an argument that Acharya makes. Uh, and so it's like, yes, okay, no, we were wrong, but here's another sort of flimsy thing that kind of makes it sort of, sort of, sort of, kind of seem true. And... That's what he's been engaging with, and I don't want to. I don't want to paint them all as completely, you know, um, disingenuous or anything. As far as the the, the uh, people that are making those kinds of claims, uh, some of them are very genuine, and I think that's why it's good that he's out there engaging them and everything. Anyway, what what that nets, what that yields, is that David is kind of at the forefront of a lot of the uh, best arguments uh, that people that hold to the zeitgeist idea still have. So his book is a really good book. If you know somebody that just will won't refu- will refuse to not give up the zeitgeist idea and the, basically mythicism that's in the name of his book is myth. Uh that's the belief if if you're lost on this it's the belief that uh Jesus was just an amalgamation of other ancient pagan gods. They say, "Oh, well, Horus did all the stuff that Jesus did and and so did Mithras and all these other ancient gods." And um the whole premise is that no, they didn't, and that uh, if you, in that stuff has been long disproven for quite a long time, and it's really it's really based on the historicity of Christ. I mean, it's the idea that Jesus never existed as a historical person, something that um, literally, I don't say literally, I don't want to speak in absolutists. I'm sure there's a handful of them that do, but you would be extremely hard pressed to find an actual uh, scholar of history at the university level. Uh, or above, that would ever say that Jesus didn't exist as a historical person. Um, but anyways, I digress. Everybody should go to, not only should they get the book, uh, the ebook I think is like you know two ninety nine or something like that, of myth. 
and he's got I think he's got a hard copy there too at Amazon. But you should not only get it, but you should also uh, uh, comment or whatever you do review on Amazon um, because he is so engaged in a very hostile online. Uh, I mean, they're being hostile. He's not online discussions. He has a just very disingenuous, bad reviews about the book. So I'm sure that uh, he would appreciate you uh, reading the book and con- commenting honestly on it. Okay, a few quick show note things here. Almost done. 12 episodes now of the television show Bible Questions TV, which is a local outreach uh, to people here in Nashville. And we're about to start moving to a different format, doing more interviews and things like that. Been really exciting. Been learning a lot about uh, production of uh, video and television, I guess. Um, also, the Ancient Aliens Project, I wanted to mention real quick. We, we moved into the research portion of that which is the fun part uh, for me anyway. Uh, it, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. We've got some people together that are looking into the claims. It's going to take a while. We're taking our time with it. The last interview won't be till late uh, August, so it gives you an idea that this is going to be a ways out uh, before the, the, the film will be ready. But but one interesting thing that came up in the, in the research recently, Sam had found something about the Nazca Lines, and most of you know what I'm talking about when I say the Nazca lines. You can look them up on, on Google if you if you don't know. It's basically hypothesized that they were, you know, created by aliens to uh, land their spaceships because obviously spaceships need runways. Uh, but uh, one one claim of ancient aliens is, and they spend quite a lot of time on this claim. They they say that the, the top of a mountain at Nazca is shaved off, like completely made flat for obviously their runway, right? And there's some Nazca lines on top of it. And by the way, these Nazca lines are really kind of superficial for the most part. I mean, they were they're they're in danger of being washed away. The, the reason they're still there is because it doesn't rain out there. Uh, but when it did rain recently, everybody got like really scared because it was pretty much going to wash them away and stuff like that. So it's not like they're burned into the ground or anything like that. They're just sort of scraped into the ground. Uh, but anyway, um, so the big thing that that ancient aliens uh, plays up is this mountaintop that's been shaved off. There's no sign of any rubble on the bottom of the mountain. What did they do with all that rubble? I ask you. What? Where? Where are all the rocks of the top of the mountain? That's what the big question is. Von Daniken and and Hair Guy and and Childers want to know. And and it seemed so simple, but I never heard of it before. But uh, when Sam was looking into that claim, he found out that it was, drum roll, and you can see I don't uh, have any production value to this podcast anymore, but uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, it was a mesa. That is a naturally occurring phenomenon. You can look at like a satellite photo of it. It's a mesa. You can look at other mesas in, in the area. It's just, that's just what it is. I mean, it's, it's a naturally occurring shaved off mountaintop. <clears throat> so it, it, it's the thing about ancient aliens is it, it's going to be even funnier to edit because of the like that they, they just set up these things so easy. <clears throat> like they'll say all the time, some kind of like false dichotomy, like, <clears throat> excuse me, there is absolutely no way <clears throat> that this could be anything but aliens. It's either, you know, and they'll say it's either something ridiculous or aliens you know and uh i mean it's just like oh that's gonna be so funny to 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 show um whatever the other actual truth about it is 
Especially when it's not subjective, when it's something obvious like that. So anyway, good job to Sam for finding that out. Got some other people that are helping with the research there, and I'm really excited for um, what we can, what we find. I hope there's a lot more stuff like that, and I'm sure that there will be. Okay, let's see here. What else is going on? Um, I guess I wanted to to do a few things here then with the show. One, I wanted to encourage people really briefly about technical, um, missionary, or discipleship stuff. If you are inclined to preach or teach or you are waiting for God to put a skyline in the sky saying, this is where I want you to do in ministry, you know, um, don't wait any longer. Use the opportunity that we have right now with the internet to reach out to people, even if it's just on Facebook with personal conversations, engaging people that you know in your family about questions. If you don't know the answers, that's quite all right. It gives you an opportunity to learn because you're sitting in front of a computer. You can look up the apologetics websites or whatever it may be and just, uh, you know, you can compose and you can, um, you can, you can help in that way. You can reach out to people on Facebook or YouTube or all those different social sites, but also you can put out information. You could put out podcast blogs, uh, videos, um, just Bible teaching or talk about difficult subjects or something that you found out or um, those kinds of things. It, you can post uh, uplifting videos to, to Facebook or you can be on the forums and uh, get on whatever it is, a conspiracy forum and start start threads that are, I say controversy all the time, I don't mean that for the sake of starting controversial topics, but the truth is controversial, and uh, don't get bogged down in fights or anything, but use it to individually uh, talk to people and to uh, to to see it not as a fight. Nobody ever wins an argument. Nobody has ever won an argument in the history of the world. You only, like, win somebody's silence. You only, you know, get them to admit defeat or anything, but your your goal should be to to humbly and humbly and gently appeal to them and it may be that God will grant them repentance, as it says in the pastorals. By the way, I just got done with a uh, podcast, <clears throat> The Leadership 2, the second session of The Leadership. I never did post the first session of The Leadership. Um, but if you want to hear that, you can. It's basically a verse-by-verse teaching through the pastoral epistles very, very quickly. Um, and you can hear that at versebyversebibleteaching.com. So anyway... Wanted to encourage people about that, and I guess uh, the other thing I wanted to encourage people is something that I, I've, I've talked about pretty much ad nauseum, but it's it's so important for us as uh, conspiracy um, people that know about conspiracy stuff yet uh, are trying to be followers of Christ. Uh, at some point, we've got to realize, you know, that we've got to be more focused on following Christ than anything else, and that's that's just who what a christian is you know and out of the heart the mouth speaks i mean we we if we if all that we ever want to hear talk about read um you know whatever that's that's really what you're into you know and i know it's hard because a lot of this stuff is true and and it's dangerous and serious and that's that's all that's where the tough part is is like what are you going to say chris should we not i mean this stuff is really really serious and I'd say, yes, it's really, really serious. And so is Jesus. He's really serious. And, and, you know, again, reading through the discipleship stuff, it was like, Lord, you know, can we be your disciple? And he was like, no, you really can't uh, because you don't really consider me that serious. You don't really take me 
and following me serious enough. If you do, he changes your heart. You don't have to be like, okay, well, I'll just get serious about Jesus and you know, and everything else. It's not really like that. It's it's sort of a heart commitment to to actually follow him and like you would follow a you know uh, Socrates or somebody else if you were going to be his uh, methetes or the Greek word for learner or disciple. If you're going to follow somebody like that, you want to follow them. You want to learn them, learn what they're like, learn what they uh, uh, do. And so I just want to encourage people like uh, to to get into that uh, more and to realize that that if Jesus really is dwelling in us and God and the God who created the universe is tabernacled in our heart, then it should start to show. It should start to bear fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit should should start to show up in your life. And if it's not, if you look at that list in Galatians five twenty two, you don't see joy and compassion and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, then it's probably an obedience issue, something that we're plagued with here in America quite a lot because we have so many opportunities to not be obedient because we're not dependent upon God, quite simply. And um, I was listening to a really good podcast the other day that said, uh, uh, if dependence is our goal, then weakness is an advantage. I think that's why of course, Paul boasts in his weakness because if if weakness makes us depend on God, if your trials and struggles and pains and and people saying bad stuff about you and everything else that happens that are bad in your life that you're going through right now, if that makes you like cry out to God for a solution, oh God, please, please come up with a solution to this problem, then that's an advantage for you if the goal is in fact dependence. And you know, I I really think that. Uh, it's a line of prudence in terms of preparation for what's you know coming down the pike or whatever, and it really is a prudence thing, and it's a heart level thing. At the same time, I mean, the same person that's completely concerned about survival, you know, has got a closet full of survival gear and is reading survival magazines, is listening to survival podcasts, and you know, then that's the same person that's going to very quickly give up. Uh, everything to live. I mean, that's, that's if the, if what is, is we're worried about and what scripture is worried about in terms of Christians in the last days is apostasy, uh, in the face of persecution, then that's going the wrong way, man. That's, that's going exactly. You're preparing your heart for failure in that sense, not preparing it for, uh, not preparing it for success. If the, if the great danger for Christians is not death, I mean, you could never read the New Testament and say, the greatest danger for Christians in the end times is that they would be killed. That would never come up theologically. They're going to get killed. They, you know, encouraged by the apostles. Hey, yeah, get killed. Get killed is way better than, uh, you know, like you said to the Thessalonians or or to the, the Hebrews or to, um, um, you know, on and on and on. Yeah, hey, Peter, talking about, talking to people that are getting killed. Yeah, that's that's what's going to happen, guys. That's that's the good part. The bad part is letting them letting them make you give it up, give up your uh, uh, faith in Christ to stay alive. You know, I mean, isn't it odd that like all persecutions by evil regimes and evil people throughout history of Christians, starting with uh, you know the Jewish persecutions and the Roman persecutions, and then the the Inquisitions and and all the stuff that's going on. Uh, even today, um, right through the line, everybody always like gave them the opportunity. They were going to kill them, torture them, everything else, as long as they, but they would completely stop 
if the person denied Jesus Christ. I mean, evil people would say, okay, yeah, okay, you can go home now. We're friends. Hey, me and you, we're cool. We're, we're good. I know I was just about to kill you and torture you, but as long as you deny Jesus Christ, you can go home. That that shows you that Satan like would prefer that you would save your life uh, as opposed to deny Christ if like the same tactic has been done for since since we've been around as Christians um, is that everybody the Jewish uh, the Jewish uh, up until about you know when the temple was destroyed certainly that's what we read in the Bible uh, is that you know if they would go back to Judaism they could save their life that's what was happening in uh, in Hebrews and Galatians and all Colossians or whatever it was it was always a way out to avoid persecutions and Thessalonians and whatever uh, Romans I mean we've got letters from uh, you know, I think it was uh, Pliny the Younger that was writing back to Caesar saying, hey, you know, I'm having to kill women and children and, uh, you know, a whole lot of people are dying here. And the thing is, I'm giving them an opportunity to, to not be killed. I mean, I'm saying, hey, just throw this pinch of incense to Caesar and, and you'll live. And and they're not doing it, Caesar. I mean, they're not throwing the pinch of incense to, to, to you and so I'm having to kill them. That... The same tactic over and over and over again, just deny Christ, just worship this God and everything will be fine and we won't do this stuff. So I, I want to encourage you to go ahead and do what what Jesus says in order to be his disciple. Die to yourself, you know, be be already dead in a lot of ways, you know, don't be afraid of those that can take your life as Jesus says, you know, that's not that's not who we need to be afraid of. Be afraid of him if you're going to be afraid of anybody. That's what he says. I mean, that's the kind of guy that I, I find it hard for people to think that, that he was politically correct. Um, no, he says, "Look, be afraid. Be afraid of the who can take not just your body but your soul." That's that's what this is about. And I don't want to uh, say that this is about pacifism because listen, listen, uh, really great. Uh, <laughs> really great thing that helped me at a recent Bible study. And I, you know, all the, uh, all the things about, you know, Christians in, in trials and all these persecutions and stuff, the Bible doesn't say, oh yes, just give yourself up like sheep to the slaughter. In no way, shape or form does it do that. It, it basically says, run, just, just avoid it. How many times did Jesus himself be like, yep, looks like they're about to kill me. I'm, but this would be a good time for me to, uh, to get on out of here, you know, uh, and we see in John 4, 1, an instance of this, and it's not your usual instance of this. Y you all probably re remember parts where it's like, and they picked up stones to stone him, and he just walked through them because his time had not come yet. So that's sort of the precedent for what I'm about to say, but I'd never noticed this one before. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So, uh, so Jesus hears that, hey, you know, the Pharisees just found out that uh, you're baptizing more people than John. And Jesus says, well, it'd be a good time for me to leave then, you know. And um, I think that's pretty much the model that you see with the, with the church, too. I mean, nobody was saying, hey, look, uh, you know, let's they want to kill us. Let's let them kill us. They were all getting out of town. You know, what does Jesus say about the abomination of desolation? When you see this happen, flee, 
flee. I don't care where you are. If you're in the house or whatever, just run, run, run. Get out of there. He's about to start killing all of you. He doesn't say, now your time has come. Lay down and, and die. But at the same time, the, 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 it is very clear that when your time comes, it wasn't an accident. It, you know, God is sovereign. God says in Revelation uh, uh, six to the to the souls under the altar, saying, "How long, O holy and true, until you until you avenge those who who were who were slaughtered just like we were?" And he and his answer is, "I'm going to wait till more of them get slaughtered just like you were." Um, that's that sounds sort of weird to us if we're trying to preserve our life when when we we see that uh, that's actually a sort of prerequisite uh, for the judgment of the wicked is that some more of us would need to be. Uh, killed just like they were. God describes it in Daniel and other places as, as sort of a a purification time and process. But in no way does it does it mean that it's a uh, it's something that we need to just just accept. But I kind of look at it, this analogy sometimes when people, you know, you're supposed to run from the Gestapo. You're supposed to hide from the Gestapo. Uh, but when they come to your door, um, don't go out in a blaze of glory with your guns. That, take taking a bunch of them to 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 hell. Um, sending a bunch of them to hell, uh, they, you know, go with them, you know, you're, you're done unless God wants to, you know, pray for a miracle, pray that, you know, an angel shows up and, and just like Jesus said, you know, when, uh, when the, when Peter cut off the dude's ear, uh, you know, Jesus says, look, don't you know that I could pray and ask my father to send 10,000s of legions or, or whatever? I mean, that's pretty awesome in itself that Jesus says, you know, I could pray and get a whole bunch of angels out here and they would really do a number on these cats, but but he doesn't, you know, his time had come. And if your time comes, go with them, you know. And and then how many instructions are there in the Bible about that? When your time comes, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'm going to say it for you because I'm going to do something with it. That's sort of how we can make sense of Revelation 6. Because we know that during that time, when innocent people are killed, it just does something to people. And those last words of all the great martyrs of history, of Polycarp and so on and so on, has, you know, as the old saying goes, the, the blood of the martyrs, it, you know, has watered, has been the water of the church. People saw it. It did something to them. This person is innocent. That's it's unjust. That person died so nobly. How could a person die so nobly? There really must be something to this. They, they, they were given, a, given them an opportunity to, to, to recant, but they must believe it so much that, you know, this must be real. I must be, have been lied to about this. Maybe these people aren't the enemies, and so on. So, um, you know, the answer to all this, every problem, I think, I think now every single problem that ever anybody emails me about is pretty much solved with follow Jesus, follow him. Start right now saying, okay, you're the boss. You're like my master. I'm going to like learn about you and I'm going to follow you. Whatever you say goes, that that's, that's what I'm going to do. In your heart, if you can just start that journey of being a follower of Christ, everything else sort of falls into place. Everything, all the, you know, your heart will start to change, whatever it is, if it's a sin issue, if it's a, you know, lack of obedience issue, if it's a whatever issue, just make that your goal of reading the Bible. Make that your goal of prayer. You are a follower of Christ and not just a follower, but also uh, um, a co-heir with a a brother. uh, uh. So anyway, um, wanted to talk about something completely different as well. I had just been uh, talking about on Facebook. I wrote a post about uh, me listening to a podcast about Roman history. It's called The History of Rome. And it's so, so good, so funny. 
Uh, I really only listened to maybe the last maybe 30 or so podcasts or about 30 minutes each. And I, and he's almost done. I think he's, I mean, he's been doing this for like several years. I think he just actually did the entire history of Rome, but he's so good. It's so, I mean, I actually understand, uh, stuff that, well, I never really did understand completely the, the history of the fall of Rome. If you look up the fall of Rome on like, you know, Wikipedia or something like that, it's like, very complex, to say the least. I, I mean, the, the old joke that he's making in his podcast is like another one of the 257 reasons that Rome fell. I mean, it's like a pretty complicated, convoluted thing. It just sort of fizzles out. I mean, and like everybody would say, well, maybe Rome fell at this point. I think, you know, and they fight about it. Well, I think Rome fell at this point, you know, 100 years before that. Well, I think the real fall of Rome started at this 100 years before that or 200 years after that. Or, so everybody's kind of got their own pet moment that they think it fell but basically it fell a lot of times for you know you know whatever you get the idea anyway i would encourage you to listen to that podcast if you're at all a history buff again called the history of rome podcast um but uh the reason i mention it is because uh i wanted to figure out what i could figure out about the fall of rome because of Daniel 2, which talks about they shall not cleave themselves together even as iron does not mix with clay. And I've talked about in the past how that is talking about, I, I, we all know it's talking about Rome because it's the it's the legs of iron first and, and you know iron stomps on stuff. It describes iron as like very strong. The legs of iron we all know are, is Rome. But then the, it doesn't change kingdoms between the feet, the feet and the toes. It just says then the feet of the toes are made of you know, iron and clay, and it's kind of partly strong and partly brittle because it's a kingdom divided, and they shall not cle- and they will try to cleave themselves together, but they will not. You know, what they will not cleave together. So, what what uh, the hypothesis is here is that it's talking about the end of Rome, how it just sort of fizzled out. It was partly strong and partly brittle, and I wanted to talk about this in relation to the the usual sort of idea that it's talking about the Nephilim. And because I think it's uh, I think it's important that we figure this out. And I have talked about this before, but I've got some new information and just a new angle to to look at this. Let me explain briefly why I wanted to look at the history again of Rome for myself to make sure I was hearing from a non-biased source about how Rome fell. Is because sometimes when you read Bible commentators, eh, you sometimes don't know if you're getting like the version of history that that may fit best with the Bible or, or whatever, or fit best with their theological um, presuppositions. Because a lot of the Reformed commentators or Reformation commentators, I guess I should say, probably one of the same, um, they have particular views about stuff that's prophetic, and so sometimes they try to make history fit uh, round pegs into square holes and, and so on. And so that's it was important for me because of the complex issue here, about the fall of Rome to to know for myself to a degree how Rome actually fell. And the other thing that's important is uh, let me let me first explain the thumbnail of what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision in Daniel 2. Daniel interprets the vision from him. It's the big statue, the head of gold, you know, the breastplate of or not a breastplate, the the chest of I think it's brass and or silver and then brass and then iron is the legs and 
almost no one would disagree that the the legs of iron and the and the feet and the toes, which are not a separate kingdom, the legs and feet and toes are all the same kingdom. Uh, it just so in the the legs of iron are Rome, and everybody knows it. I mean, there's just no way around it. But the feet and the toes are also Rome because it's not a different kingdom; it's all part of the same kingdom. But they're constructed differently. the 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 last part, chronologically, again, you have to say that the feet and toes represent a chronological uh, end of the kingdom, and because the head being chronologically Babylon and and so on, it's a chronological statue from top to bottom. So, the end of the Roman Empire is uh, partly strong and partly weak. I'm going to read a little bit more. Uh, let me read the verse in question here. Uh, As you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the descendants of men, but they shall not hold one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. That's the, the verse in question here. This is used uh, to say that since they mingle themselves with the descendants of men, that's the problem. Is They say, well, they must be something other than the descendants of men. So there's two real problems here. Number one, people are saying that this means that this is like aliens or Nephilim or something like that. And number two is that they push this statue to have to be the end times. Okay, They say the, the feet and the toes is not representing uh, the, the fall of Rome uh, and how it fizzled out and just was partly strong and partly weak. But it's the end times. It's, that's why they come up with the revived Roman Empire. The reason primarily that people say, okay, well, it can't just be the end of Rome, is because it was destroyed in the vision by a rock not made with uh, human hands, another kingdom, okay? And of course, that's the kingdom of God, destroys that statue, starting, you know, hitting the feet, okay? So the presupposition is that that moment of the rock, the kingdom of God, uh, uh, hitting the statue must be an, an eschatological event, a future event, a last times event. So that that's why they say, well, since you know that statue isn't destroyed, in you know, then then we've got to push that event. We've got to make Rome last another two thousand years somehow, or a thousand years anyway. Um, so they, they've kind of like you know tried to revive the corpse of Rome. Come on, stay alive, stay alive. We've got to make you last to the end time so you can be survived, uh, so you can survive uh, and we can we can kill you off then. But the that presupposition is, is wrong, in my opinion, because the, it's a, the kingdom of God was established during the Roman Empire. Uh, the kingdom of God was established in, in Christ's first coming. Uh, that's what his gospel, you know, came to preach the, the, the kingdom of God gospel. And the point I guess I want to make in that is that the parables of the kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed, starts out as a mustard seed and grows into uh, um, a huge uh, plant that birds are able to to nest in its branches and things like that. The, the parables of the kingdom of God demonstrate that that the kingdom of God is, is a growing thing uh, that, that was started with, you know, started on the Pentecost. And, of course, Rome was on the decline ever after that. So anyway, the and you know you could you could make a case if you wanted to that Christianity and many people do if you if you read the wikipedia of uh of of uh, of the of the fall of Rome, they pretty much blame the whole thing on Christianity. I don't think I want to go there. I mean, I I think it's a it's a valid argument because I mean in all in all you know it really did in a lot of ways 
especially from a secular sta standpoint. But I, I don't think that's necessarily what's in view here. The other problem with this is that um, the next, when Daniel has a vision in Daniel chapter seven, which is of four beasts, uh, everybody just, I guess, assumes that they're the same beasts. You know that he has four beasts and. And Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about four beasts, so they must be the same. So they try to, again, do the, the, the round peg, square hole thing. I guess it would be square pegs and round hole would be a better way to do that. Anyway, um, they try to make those beasts be equal to uh, Daniel 2. Uh, but the problem there is a contextual one. Those four beasts are contemporary. They exist at the same time. And they're, they all end up at the same time towards the end. Um, the... Those beasts are represented in Revelation 13.1 when they come out of the sea completely amalgamized, you know, the, which is, represents the Antichrist. The Antichrist essentially takes four kingdoms over on his ascent to the throne here in the last days. And once he takes those four groups, kingdoms, whatever you want to say, together and makes them one, that's what he comes to the stage in as sort of a, a the king of of whatever four groups that is. And th those wars that uh, of him conquering those kingdoms are described in Daniel um, 10 up to 11, about halfway through 10 up to 11. And that's also what I think the wars and rumors of wars that Christ talks about on the run-up to, uh, to the Antichrist declaring himself to be God in the temple. Nevertheless, my point is back here in Daniel 2. So, now, I mentioned before that we've got a contextual problem anyway. Um, let's, let's start in Daniel 4, let's, Daniel 2.40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh into pieces and subdueth all things, and iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of the potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be uh, in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and of the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Contextually, uh, this is talking about the dividedness of the kingdom. The kingdom shall be divided, uh, and they will have different, partly strong and partly weak. The two parts of the kingdom will try to cleave themselves together. To And that's contextually, grammatically, I guess is probably better to say that the subject of the they is the two parts of the kingdom uh, that are not cleaving together um, will try to cling, cling, uh, cling themselves together. The problem is the old if they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron, they will try to mingle themselves with the seed of men. So it's it's an English problem here because now we've got what this means is that they have to be something other than the seed of men. That's how this was explained to me by Chuck Missler, uh, you know, in, in his studies. Like they have to be something other than the seed of men. There's no other explanation for this except they're aliens slash nephilim, and this is in the end times. And by the way, before we get into all that, I also want to say that nowhere in this does it describe the ten toes. It just says toes and feet. We sort of add to this ten toes. There's ten toes, you know. And so we kind of make a big deal out of that, too. I'm not convinced that, that, that ten uh, toes is connected to the ten kingdoms at the end times or whatever. I think that um, 
I, I don't see why the Bible doesn't make a big deal about it. And I think if we we're going to do that, then why shouldn't we be like, you know, there's two eyes on the head of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and there's a nose and a mouth and two ears. So, you know, what are we going to do with that? Or, you know, should, how far should we take it? You know, how far do we take the statue as, you know, talk about the anatomy of each part of the statue and say, well, I wonder what the, you know what I mean? Anyway. So, um, what I want to talk about is the, 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 they, I want you to know that how other, first of all, let's talk about how other, uh, translations translate this, not necessarily good translations, a new living translation. You won't find me reading anytime. Uh, but it says this, the mixture of iron and clay shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. The ESV, which I do think is a pretty good uh, translation uh, when it when it uh, doesn't deviate from text receptus and stuff. It says, as you saw the iron mix with soft clay, so they will mix one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Um, another word, uh, the again, I'm not endorsing these translations. I want to show you that a lot of translations do use it. God's words translation, so the parts of the kingdom will be mixed by intermarrying. Now, why would they, would they take such liberty in saying something like that? And the reason is because if you just use the Bible to uh, to translate the Bible, and actually, if you actually look at uh, the Treasury of Scripture knowledge about this particular verse, it um, that's what it says. It says um, it talks about well, actually, it doesn't talk about marriages. It does talk about Rome, though. Um, and the Treasury of Scripture knowledge actually does not have an entry for this as far as pointing to another verse, but. The thing is, if you do compare scripture with scripture, you can compare it to Ezra 9, 2, and others where the same elements are found. It says, for they have taken their daughters for themselves. Now, this is talking about uh, the the Jewish people that went back to Jerusalem, but they disobeyed uh, God. God told them, don't intermarry with uh, the Canaanites and don't intermarry, intermarry with other people. Um, and it says, for they have taken their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers shall been uh, shall been chief in the tr- in this trespasses. So what's interesting here is that this, you have the seeds mingling themselves. Okay, the same language here, same words in the King James. We have precedent now to know what it is. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Now, there's a, there's, uh, I was reading uh, somebody's website that was making the Nephilim case recently, and it's like, this is talking about genetic manipulation, there's no other way. And in one sense, I would agree with them, because it's not necessarily that they intermarried. The, the thing was, is that they had kids... And that was what the mingling together was. They they mingled together, not just in the marriage, they mingled together for the purpose of producing offspring. This is where an interesting tie comes in with the Roman uh, history research that I've been doing. Is that, you know, in fact, the word matrimony is, you know, kind of says what the purpose is. Matrimony means mother. Um, the purpose was to produce the offspring. But it was especially true in the alliances of Rome trying to keep itself together, trying to trying to somehow, in all efforts, try to make alliances with people because their kingdom was definitely divided. I mean, it was uh, ruled by, you know, the east and the west and, and the and the middle, uh, different emperors at different times. I mean, by the end, I mean, there were always at least one, two, or th- three emperors. Very rarely was there one emperor if it was just for a short time before another emperor could be taken. So to say the kingdom was uh, divided would be a picture-perfect description of the last few hundred years of Rome. A divided kingdom would be an understatement. But 
it was interesting when marriages, which were also a huge part of the fall of Rome. I mean, you know, it's almost this endless uh, string of, of marriages uh, to, to say that's one of the reasons I wanted to try to figure out how big were marriages. You know, if this is really talking about marriages here in, in the Daniel two forty three that they tried to mingle their seed with the with the seed of men, uh, and of course that's a, it doesn't it's probably not the best way to translate that as far as the King James, and it's caused us to kind of get bad theology uh, because of not it could have been said or said better in the English, or maybe that made a lot more sense back in sixteen hundred. Uh, I don't know, but the point is is that if it is talking about marriages, then how big of a deal were marriages? Because I have here, uh, you know, I've got commentators that say things like, uh, let's see if I can find a good one. Um, You know, talks about the different things. Uh, Listen to this. No one can be ignorant of the manner in which they became intermingled with the ancient Roman Empire or of the attempts to form alliances with them by intermarriages and other other which... were which were always like attempts to unite iron and clay. Placidia, the daughter of Theodosius the Great, was given in marriage to Adolphus, the king of the Goths. The two daughters of, of Stilicho, the Vandal, were successfully married to Honorius and Genseric. Another Vandal gave uh, Eudocia, a captive of the imperial princess, to his son his wife. The effects of the intermarrying of the foreign people on the character and destiny of the emperor cannot be stated perhaps in a more graphic manner that is done by Mr. Gibeon in the summary of a review of Roman history, which he concludes in the seventh chapter and goes on. Uh, so what I kind of wanted to know is like, are they sort of like picking and choosing or does that stuff actually have a lot to do with the fall of Rome? You know, is, is that if I were to study study the history of Rome independently, would I find those things to be as prominent as this Bible commentator who obviously, you know, could want to promote his view? So what I found is, no, that's serious. That is like a big part of this is the, the intermarriages. Um, to try to keep all this stuff together. And there were, like it says, the Vandals and the Goths and even uh, 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 one with the Huns that didn't quite uh, didn't quite work out. Sort of a interesting story there with Attila the Hun and uh, getting this ring in the mail from a uh, princess. Anyway, the, the point is, is that contextually and every other thing in the book, this doesn't have to do with Nephilim. It doesn't have to do with Nephilim. Even if you just say, okay, well, the seed and the intermingling, the seed with people uh, is, is mentioned several times in the Bible. And it's clear that it's talking about mingling their seed with other people. Now, one person uh, made the point, well, if they were not to mingle their seed with the people in Canaan because the people in Canaan were Nephilim. But that may be true in some of the, uh, you know, you could pick and choose. I think there's five or six uh, verses where it talks about this intermingling, you know, they you don't mingle your seed with their seed. Uh, but not every case was it, you know, Nephilim, potentially Nephilim. I mean, it never makes the case unless you sort of read into the text or like, you know, that God didn't want him to mingle with uh, foreign people because the foreign people were all Nephilim. Then you're then you're going a little further than the Bible does and, and going going into potential error with that. Uh, I mean, I agree that uh, that's certainly possible or whatever, but it's not contextually God's reason for doing it. And and I would also submit that there are plenty of other uh, places where the same words are used that are much, extremely less likely to have anything to do with Nephilim. So, so basically, this is a brilliant, unbelievably accurate prophecy about the end of Rome. Get done well before the end of Rome. It It, it doesn't need to be any more than that. We don't need to, A, make this be Nephilim, and B, make it be an end-time scenario. 
And by making this the, the end time scenario, we're missing the actual end time scenario in Daniel 7 with the four contemporary kingdoms that we will see. And we're missing Daniel 10 through Daniel 11, talking about the wars and rumors of wars in preparation for the while the Antichrist makes these alliances and makes this one world government. Uh, I've talked before about a, a great uh, paper on this called Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, Equal or Not Equal. Uh, it doesn't go into a lot of what I just went into in terms of Daniel 2.43, of course, but it does go into the, the broader part that we don't need to make these. Uh, this is just the end of Rome. It's not... It's not anything more or anything less. And I think this is on my heart for several reasons. Uh, the idea of Nephilim and Bible prophecy is getting so intertwined with Christian conspiracy stuff. And it's just, it's like, I, I don't know how, they, they've got to come up with scenarios, unbiblical scenarios to make this work in Revelation or any, or the, all of the discourse. Or, no, None of the material we have on on prophecy about what to expect is talking about the nephilim or, or requires the nephilim or or anything if you take daniel 243 here out of the equation then you are extremely hard pressed to make a theory about hey the nephilim are going to be a big part of this or whatever um because they're not and you don't need the nephilim to have a, a ufo kind of uh a deception i mean i don't think that the nephilim have anything to do with the ufo stuff I think as Joe Jordan believes, I think the whole idea of like them messing with, uh, you know, or trying, you know, uh, organs and stuff like that and, and reproductive stuff, that's just a, a ruse to, to sort of sell the idea that we were, uh, can be evolved into these guys and they were just genetically modified. I think it's a big scam. And I think if you fall for it, you're setting yourself up for the biggest scam of all time, that you too can be evolved because they essentially, you know, genetically modified you. And, and basically, Joe Jordan and I would agree with him uh, wholeheartedly in this, that a lot of that stuff is used to control people if they think that they, you know, have a baby in space and they're more willing to go up and get tortured. Most of the people that have pointed out that, you know, what they're doing with the reproductive stuff up there uh, has a lot, looks a lot more like medieval torture than it does uh, an advanced race using, uh, you know, uh, technological, you know, we've, we've moved past the kind of archaic, uh, torture that they're doing on reproductive organs up there in space. We've moved past that a long time ago, and yet they're still like in the in the Stone Age as far as uh, 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 you know science. But what's more likely is that they are um, just purely. I kind of look at it like a, a hologram situation. They can they're real as can be. I mean, demonic beings are real. They are probably more real in in a lot of senses than you and I. I don't know if they operate on more dimensions or whatever, but they're you know they're hard you know real beings but because of the nature of dimensions and things like that we don't uh, interact with them as that it doesn't mean that they aren't real or that they're wisps of nothingness they're they're real and if you open up doors to them whether that is through occult practices or serious types of drug use and different things like that you'll find out very quickly that they are they are real that they can physically do stuff and and they can make things look like it you know talk to somebody who you know, take some some heavy uh, drugs that uh, 
particular kinds of drugs, I mean, you immediately go to a different place where things are real and you are definitely feeling like you're really there and they're really there too and they're really doing stuff to you. I don't think that that means that, you know, it, it could essentially just be grand hallucinations, but, you know, um, to hear this stuff over and over and over again, especially with all the different stuff with sleep paralysis, I've come to the conclusion that, that uh, though you may be in your bed, actually, and you may be having a, a, a very you know, whatever, you are actually being, um, you know, physically assaulted in some cases. I don't want to go into too metaphysical about that. I can't remember what my point was. I think it was uh, just to say that, oh yeah, that Nephilim are not necessary in order to have, um, to explain alien abductions or alien interactions. Certainly not lights in the sky. That can be any number of things. Uh, it could be spacecraft that we're not aware of, you know, that's not public domain kind of aircraft or it can be just uh demonic deception no, no you know that satan appears as an angel of light uh kind of thing and i know that a lot of these people that quote unquote summon ufos uh, are just basically doing that it's it, there's no craft there there's no aliens from another planet inside of there it's just a deception and so so i just want to appeal to a lot of us to, to kind of like get off the nephilim fever here you know, if you want to look at if you want to look at Genesis six and all the weird stuff that went on there, that's that's one thing from a biblical perspective. But don't do it because you got to figure out what what's going on because the end times we got to figure out the Nephilim situation because that's just you're just got your eyes off the prize, man. I mean, keep the keep the main thing the main thing, that is Jesus. If, if and Jesus, you know, he he wrote the Bible. He wrote he wrote about Genesis six and he wrote about Bible prophecy. He, he wants you to know about it. But I can guarantee it. He doesn't want you to just, that's everything you want to talk about, learn about, whatever. And that's especially lame when it's wrong. Uh, so anyway, I guess that's the, the show for the day. Um, wanted to remind you here about a few different things. Wanted to remind you about the book, Myth, from David Anderson. You can see the, the link to that. It's a big old banner on my website, nowhere2runradio.com. And remember to go to Amazon and to comment on that book if you do buy it. Also, let's see here, Bible Questions TV, The Ancient Aliens Project, Nazca Lines, technical missionary stuff. If you've called to preach, teach, or whatever, don't wait. You already have your marching orders. It's in the Bible. He, You know, you start bearing fruit, he'll start pruning you to bear even more fruit. But just go ahead and take the first step. You don't need to wait for him. He's already told you what to do. Um, let's see, Africa is coming up getting serious with that two months to go or a little less, or i don't know yeah a little less than two months that's scary uh got a lot to do there yet um but things are really going good i, I just feel every day more and more uh, passion for what's going on and i really hope that uh everything just uh everything works out uh new shows on the revelations radio network so go to revelationsradionetwork.com check on the shows list i think the bottom four are the new ones there um and I guess that's it for me. So if you uh, have any questions for me about anything that I said here, don't hesitate to write. You can do so at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Thank you for your time. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time. Stay the road.